Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, When You Meet the God of the Stories. Now, an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. We've always heard maybe the stories of how your parents survived the demands of college, and then one day, you're signing up for college courses and you enter into a story all your own. Or you go to your grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary and you hear the stories about how they made it through the tough years of life as a married couple. And then one day you're standing in a wedding chapel with the one you love, reciting vows to each other, and you begin a story all your own. Or you look at home movies of your parents, 20, 30 years younger, and those on that screen, and they look, so, they look so young, and they're helping you open presents on Christmas Day. But then one day, a doctor gives you a little bundle of joy, a son or a daughter gets put in your arms, and you begin a story all your own. Now, that is true not only when it comes to our earthly family. It's true when it comes to our spiritual family as well. This Bible, you know, this becomes your family scrapbook when you become a believer, and all the characters in this story become members of your own family ancestors. And so in this family scrapbook, there's Daniel in the lion's den because he stayed faithful to God, and Jonah in the belly of the whale because he didn't stay faithful to God, and Joshua marching around Jericho, and Zacchaeus up a tree because he wanted to see Jesus, and that woman who was caught in the very act of adultery who was miraculously, wondrously forgiven by Jesus, they're all part of our family history. Now when they faced their crisis times, some of them performed admirably and some of them perform miserably, but rest assured, one day you're going to find yourself in a story all your own. Now that happened to the people of Jerusalem in the passage that we're going to look at today. And so I'd like you to find Psalm 48 in your copy of God's Word. Psalm 48 is a poem that a poet wrote when his generation faced something that they had never experienced before. They had all along heard stories, recited to each other stories, sang songs about things that had happened in the past, but then they entered into a story all their own. Now, we don't know what point in history this psalm exactly points to. Most scholars believe it was the days of Hezekiah when the Assyrians were trying to invade Jerusalem, and I think that they're right. But whatever it is, it's going to be obvious as we read it here that this generation faced a crisis that they never faced before. They told each other stories of Abraham. They told each other stories of Daniel. They had recited stories of King David. But now they experience the God of these stories themselves. Let's take a look, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. 
You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. God bless the reading of his word. Now I want you to look again at verse 8. He says, as we have heard, as we have only heard, now we have seen for ourselves the poet and his generation had met the God of the stories. You know, if you think about it, Christianity fundamentally is a religion of stories. When we come in every Sunday to this place, we tell each other the stories out of our family album, the Bible. We remind each other of all that has been experienced by the people long before we came on the scene. Other religions are different. Other religions are about philosophical instruction or mystical allegory or ethical codes. But the Christian faith is a religion of stories. But one day we become a player in a story all our own. And maybe it's like the story of Daniel. We've told each other stories of Daniel all our lives. We go to Sunday school, we hear these stories, and then one day we face a tough time because of our faithfulness. And we've entered into a story all our own. Or maybe the story is like Abraham's. And we've read stories about Abraham. We tell each other stories about Abraham who stepped out in faith, even though he didn't exactly know how God was going to provide for the journey he was sending him on. But then one day we enter into a story all our own. And we know that we are supposed to step out in faith, even though we don't know exactly how God is going to provide when we do so. Or maybe the story that we enter into is like Moses. All these years we've told our, the story about Moses and, and feeling so inadequate for the leadership that God was calling him into. And then one day we enter into a ministry position or we take up a leadership position, uh, even though we don't feel adequate for it. And we enter into a story all our own. All our lives we've told each other these stories. And then one day, just as verse 8 says in Psalm 48, we say, as we've only heard, now we have seen. One day we meet the God of the stories. Now it happened to this poet, this poet who wrote Psalm 48, in some sort of crisis time, some sort of military crisis. Like I said, we're not exactly sure what the crisis was, but some believe it was during the time of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah and his people had already seen Assyria come down and destroy the ten northern tribes of Israel. Uh, at this point, uh, God's people had been separated out into the ten northern tribes called Israel, the two southern tribes called Judah. Assyria comes in, demolishes the ten northern tribes, and then Sennacherib, the general, shows up on the very doorstep of Jerusalem, demanding that Jerusalem surrender as well. That may exactly be what's going on behind this situation. But the crisis was averted uh, when the vast Assyrian army was uh, struck down with a fatal illness. And many of them died, and the others sort of slinked away in defeat, and Jerusalem was spared. That may have been the historical moment that this poem was, talk, was pointing to, but whatever it was, it was something that the poet and his generation had never themselves faced before. They had told each other stories all their lives about people of the past. They'd heard stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob 
And uh, the story about the divine dream weaver who guided Joseph's life, that had been passed down for generations. I'm sure every new crop of boys got a chance to sit around the campfire and listen wrapped and excitedly as men told the story about Joshua conquering the promised land or David and all his military exploits. But that had been years ago. That had been decades ago. For some of those stories, that had been centuries ago. But now here was the Assyrian army or some other formidable force threatening Jerusalem, overshadowing Jerusalem, and the stories of the past that they had all told each other all this time, they didn't smell so musty anymore. The poet and his generation found themselves players in a story all their own. And I'm sure they had the same questions that you and I would have had if we were facing something like that. Does God want to help us deal with what we're going through? Does God care what we're going through? Does God even know what we're going through at this time? And as you can tell from verses 4 through 7 of this passage, God intervened in a dramatic way. Now again, just like we don't know the exact historical moment that Psalm 48 is pointing to, we therefore don't know exactly how God got them out of the problem they were in, but He got them out of the problem, and He did so in a dramatic way. We see this in verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5 says that the presence of God was so strong over the city of Jerusalem at this time that even as the enemy forces approached Jerusalem, they sensed this ominous foreboding that this was something they should not attack. And then verse 7 says that God himself was the one who destroyed their enemies, like the ships of Tarshish shattered by an east wind. The, uh, the, the Tarshish navy was legendary for the large wooden ships that they had and how they were able to control those ships and therefore the, control the, uh, the, the trading routes on the seas. But just as the ships of Tarshish were legendary, so the east wind was legendary. And when it swept down over the Mediterranean Sea, even those mighty wooden ships of Tarshish could just be smashed into only so many toothpicks. God took care of this threat against Jerusalem in the same way that the east wind could take care of the ships of Tarshish. As far back as any of these people could remember, the people who experienced this event in Psalm 48, as far back as they could remember, they'd heard stories about God's call to ministry, stories about God's rescue, stories about God's companionship. But in the episode described in Psalm 48, what they had heard all their lives, they now got a chance to see for themselves, and they met the God of the stories. When you meet the God of the stories, how should you respond? Because one day you're going to. We tell each other these stories, we remind each other of these stories, but one day you are going to experience the God of the stories yourself. When you do, how should you respond? Well, Psalm 48 is very instructive for us because in Psalm 48, the people here respond with praise and with proclamation. And that's what I, that's what I, uh, I want you to do as well when you meet the God of the stories. So find your sermon notes, find a pen or a pencil, and write this first point down. When you meet the God of the stories... Respond with praise. When you meet the God of the stories, respond with praise. You know, the first thing that these people did in Psalm 48 was that they praised God for His gracious help. In fact, the thing that strikes you when you read this psalm is their praise is fresh from their rescue. It's clear in Psalm 48 that the poet didn't write this 10 years after it happened. It's almost as if they have come out of the bomb shelter 
And they're looking around, blinking in the sunlight in astonishment that Jerusalem's still standing. And he writes, it's as if he writes this poem right, he, right then and right there. Jerusalem had been spared. And he says with relief, verse 1, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Now, I know it's true in your own life that when you are at risk of losing something precious to you, when you have something that is valuable to you and you, it, it almost gets taken away, it almost gets lost, but it doesn't, it gets rescued. And at that moment, in a sigh of relief, it is far more valuable to you than it ever was before. And that's what you're seeing this poet talk about. I mean, he loved Jerusalem, but he loved it even more now that it had been rescued in this dramatic way. And so he says in verse 2, it's beautiful. It's beautiful in its loftiness, like the utmost heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Now, what does that mean? Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion. And we know what Mount Zion is, or we should if we read the Bible any. We know that Mount Zion is just another name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on a hill, a mountain. It was called Mount Zion. And so in the Bible, you can hear them refer to Mount Zion or Jerusalem. It's the same thing. It's the the city of God. It's that place where the temple had been built, Mount Zion. But what is, what is Zaphon? Well, Zaphon you cannot find using Google Maps because Mount Zaphon only existed in pagan mythology. In the pagan uh, stories of, of uh, Baal, the pagan god of the surrounding cultures, uh, in their mythology, and their stories, they believed in this place called Zaphon. And if you could just find Mount Zaphon and climb to the top of it, you would be able to meet Baal. You'd be able to meet God face to face. And so this poet is mocking the paganism of the surrounding culture by saying, like Zaphon is Mount Zion and all its glory. What he's saying here is, if you want to meet God, if you really want to meet God, don't go looking for the mythical mountain of Zaphon. Come to Mount Zion. Come to Jerusalem. Meet God in the temple there, and you'll find God. And he had all the more reason to say this now that God proved that this was his special place. This was his special city because his temple was there. He dwelt there, and he rescued the people at this particular juncture. You know, up to this point uh, in, in this poet's life, I imagine he sang a lot of songs that other people had written about their experience with God. Why do I say that? I don't know if you noticed this, if you had your Bibles open, but there is a notation that starts Psalm 48. What does it say? Many of them say a Psalm of David. This one doesn't say that. What does it say? A Psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, the Korahites was a family of musicians. It was kind of a guild of musicians. So you, you could say that this son of Korah was a music minister. And he sang other people's songs about their experience with God. And he led in the worship so other people could sing other people's songs about their experience with God. All his life he had done that. And now he's got a song himself because he has an experience with God himself. And so he sings about his own experience in verse 3. God is in her citadels, he sings. He has shown himself to be her fortress. In other words, I've seen it for myself. I've been singing other people's songs about it. Now I experience God's rescue myself. I have my own song. There's going to come a time when you will have your own song. You sing songs that other people have composed about their experiences with God, but there's going to come a time when you realize that He really can rescue, He really can guide, He really can empower, 
He really can't turn things around. He really can't forgive you and give you a second chance. And the first thing you ought to do is the first thing the poet did. When you experience God in that way, you ought to praise the God of the stories. We read in verse 9 that the people moved from their still standing city into their still standing sanctuary. And there it says they meditated upon what God had done for them. They reflected over all that they had experienced. They reflected over the implications of it. And they lifted up praise to God. But there's a second thing we ought to do. And I want you to write this down. When you meet the God of the stories, respond in this way. Respond with proclamation. Not just praise, proclamation. Praise by itself can be just kind of turned inward. Praise by itself can involve other people, but other people who are excited about God like you are. But then proclamation comes. Proclamation of what God has done for you. Uh, We should worship the God of the stories. But then we should turn to the people that are coming up behind us, generations that are coming up behind us. And we can say everything that we've been telling you is true. I've experienced it for myself. And we can pass down our own stories to the next generation. That's what the poet said to his generation in verses 12 through 14. In my mind, as I read through the Psalms, as I sometimes do, these are some of my favorite verses. They're some of the most beautiful words of poetry in in human history. He says, walk about Zion. Again, there's this idea that they've come out of the bomb shelter and they've looked around and they're blinking in the sunlight and they're seeing all that God rescued. And he says, let's do it. Let's take a tour. Walk about Zion. Count her towers. Not one has been scathed. Consider well her ramparts. Not one has been scaled. View her citadels. Not one has been scarred. And then he declares the second most important line in this psalm. He says that you may tell them to the next generation. I said it's the second most important line. The most important line in this psalm is verse 8. We've already looked at it. As we have heard, so we have seen. His generation, in other words, had personally met the God of the stories. That's the most important line. But the second most important line is verse 13, where he says, get ready to add your own story to the stories that we've been collecting and we've been passing down from generation to generation. Pass on to those coming behind you what you've experienced with God. You know, it's interesting how this poet saw his generation as nothing particularly important, nothing particularly special, just one little brief moment of existence in the flow of God's river. There were generations before his generation, there would be generations afterwards, and he was just one moment of existence in that flow of God's river. That's not often the way we think of things, is it? We often feel very competitive generation to generation. And so we think our generation, the boomers, or the greatest generation, or Generation X, or the millennials, that we're the most evolved, that we're the most insightful. All those people who, went, who, who, who came before us, they were really just ignorant until we came on the scene. All those that are coming up behind us, well, they're just so ill-prepared for life and lazy, unlike our generation. That's the way we so often think. But the poet in this psalm, psalm self is just one point, an important point, but just one point of existence on the flow of God's river. There were generations that had experienced God before him. There were generations that were going to experience God long after he left the scene. And just as people had passed down their experiences of God to him, he needed to pass down now his experiences of God to the people coming behind. Now, how do you do that? 
Now, obviously, it, it includes being involved in raising your own children and raising your own high school students in such a way that they understand your faith and it becomes important to them like it's important to you. And obviously, it also includes being involved in ministries and supporting ministries in this church where children and where high school students are being passed down these stories that we've heard all of our lives. But I think it involves even more than that. I think it involves the importance of pouring yourself into other adults who are in a generation behind you. Somewhere along the way, you start realizing that you're not the last generation on this earth, or it doesn't look like you're going to be. Uh, somewhere around the age of, oh, I don't know, in your mid-30s, and there's somebody that gets hired by your company right out of college, and you speak to them in pop, uh, pop culture terms and in music that was popular to you in high school or in college, and they look at you quizzically, and you realize you just past the line of starting to get old in your mid-30s. <laughs> but here's the reality. You see, as we move through adulthood, there are persons that are behind us and persons that are behind them, increasingly so, that need to hear your experiences with God. They need to hear the wisdom you've gained from your experiences with God. Howard Hendricks said this in a book called The Seven Promises, and it's a book specifically for men uh, so even on this Mother's Day, I'll talk about to what Howard Hendricks said to men. Uh, if you've been in this congregation for any length of time, you've heard me reference this because it's so important. When I ran across it, it, it struck me as so true, so right. Hendricks says that every man needs a Paul, and every man needs a Barnabas, and every man needs a Timothy. Every man needs a Paul. We need a mentor, somebody to look up to, somebody to aspire to. And every man needs a Barnabas. Barnabas, you remember in the Bible, was the son of encouragement. That's literally what his name means. We need somebody to come beside us and be our friend and stand with us and encourage us. But Howard Hendricks says that if we're going to be fulfilled in life, every man also needs a Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege. As Paul got ready to leave the scene, as Paul got ready to die, he had this sense of fulfillment and satisfaction because there was at least one minister, one man, into whom he had poured all his experience, all his knowledge, young Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church. And, and, and so Hendricks is saying that, that uh, all of us as men, we all recognize that we need somebody to aspire to, we need mentors, and we all need friends, somebody to encourage us and come along beside us and pray for us. But a lot of us, we think it might be a nice option, but we don't see it as essential to have a Timothy in our lives. But Hendricks says that's exactly what you need. You're going to come to a point of your life where you feel unfulfilled if you don't see your faith, your passions, your wisdom lived out in somebody else into whom you've poured your life. Now, Hendricks was speaking to men at that point, but I think it's applicable to women as well. God has wired us. God has built us in such a way that unless we can pass on our knowledge to others, we won't be fulfilled. When we come to the end of our lives, we want to know that there's somebody else who sees what we see, and understands things the way we do. So make sure you're pouring your life into children, your children and other people's children in ministry. Make sure you're pouring your life into high school students, your own high school students and other people's high school students and youth ministry. Make sure you're, especially as you move along in life, start pouring yourself into those who are coming behind you as well. You need to say to them what this poet said, as we have heard, so we've seen for ourselves. God really came through for us. 
And I read about this odd experimental play one time where everybody gathered uh, in for the play and they were sitting in these seats and the curtain rose and on the stage were the backs of a bunch of people facing a curtain. And then that curtain rose and then there were the backs of a bunch of people facing another curtain. And when that curtain rose and you saw the backs of other people waiting for another curtain to rise, the original audience started looking back to see if maybe there was a curtain about to rise on them. Now, as weird as that play would be to go to, the reality is that that's what Psalm 48 is trying to tell you. All your life, you've gone to church, you've sat down as an audience, and you've watched as if watching a play the lives of other people, the experiences of other people, the testimonies of other people. But behind you, a curtain has risen. And there's a generation or several generations behind you watching you and watching how you experience God. And so we need to make sure we pay attention in Psalm 48 that there's not just the God of other people's stories, but the God of our own stories. And it's a story that we can begin today. We could begin that story with God today by surrendering our lives to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And then as we belong to Him, as we move through life, more and more we're going to have experiences with God that we can pass down to other people. You, right now, are writing the story of your life with God. Make it a bestseller. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we learn so much from the stories of what other people experienced with you. But we want to experience you for ourselves. We want to personally know your guidance, your provision, your rescue, your forgiveness. And just as others passed along their stories to us, we commit today to pass down our stories to the generations coming behind us. We pray for those who need to begin their story with you today. We pray they'll place their faith in Jesus. And we pray all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, Staking a Claim on the Past. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.